Folks, this is the time in our service where we um, acknowledge the Lord through uh, the giving of our gifts as an act of worship to Him, and we, we pray for the needs of our body, and we pray for um, the way that He has entrusted um, gifts to us that we can worship Him through that giving. And one of the things that's very appropriate when we do this in the service is we, we take our cues from Scripture. And Paul, the apostle, um, thought it was very appropriate to celebrate and commend the people of God for the way their generosity has allowed the kingdom and the gospel mission to move forward. Let me read from 2 Corinthians 9. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now listen to verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You might recall at the end of last year, really the month of December, we had a generosity initiative oriented to, to blessing our gospel partners, um, our missionaries, those who, who labor here locally or domestically, as well as those overseas. And we thought, hey, th this would be great just to, have, just to give them a little Christmas blessing, a, uh, just a small deposit down payment of our appreciation and thankfulness to them. And we had a pretty, we just had a goal of, hey, if we, if we raise $10,000 above and beyond just our regular giving, we'd be able to partition that accordingly to our 10 or 11 gospel partners. And, and of course, you guys do what you always do. You exceeded that, right? Uh, so you, there was about $20,000 given, a little, a little bit even more towards um, this initiative. And as you can imagine, that made for a very happy Christmas, right? for those partners. And so let's thank the Lord for that. And before we dive into the word, I just want to pray for our partners this morning. I want to, I want to thank God for the way he has spurred generosity in your hearts. And again, worship is not just about the horizontal. Worship is primarily about the vertical. It's an act of worship to the Lord. There's many ways to give. You can do it by dropping a gift in the offering box on the way out online. You can text, all those good things. But the important thing is that God, we orient our hearts to the Lord and say, God, would you take what's already yours and multiply it for gospel blessings? Let's pray that now. Father, what a gift it is to serve and minister in a generous church. And Lord, we don't want to take it for granted because it's truly a supernatural thing that you do. But Lord, thank you that the generosity of Four Oaks Killarn has overflowed into blessing and generosity for our gospel partners. We think about those who are ministering overseas in different parts of the country here in Tallahassee, and we thank you for them. We thank you that you have set them aside for the important work of spreading the good news of Jesus. And so bless them. Lord, bless us now as we open your word, and we ask that you would go before us now. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14 as we continue our journey through Matthew's gospel. We're rounding out 14, getting into 15. Matthew has 28 chapters, so that should tell you something, right? We're rounding the halfway point. You know, back in 2016, and I've used this illustration in different forms before. I'm going to do it again because every time I think about it, there's some new sort of spiritual 
insight into it that I'm able to, to kind of pick out and discern. You may not remember this, but in 2016, the Summer Olympics were, of course, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And when that, um, when they were awarded uh, by the committee to be the host city, everyone knew that there was a big problem going in. And the big problem was that for an industrialized first world kind of city, Rio de Janeiro is very polluted, highly contaminated, particularly its waterways. And of course, that was going to present a problem because so many Olympic events, the the boating and the triathlon and a whole host of other watercraft sports were happening on the water, and it was a highly polluted situation. And in fact, it, it was so bad that when athletes began training there, um, leading up to the Olympics, um, did you know that water skiing was an Olympic sport? I did not know that until this week, okay? There were water skiers who were having to, to dodge the debris through the slalom course, right? Oh, there's a lawn chair. Oh, there's the buoy. Okay, there, I mean, this was true. So, so Brazil went into overdrive. They were cleaning up a storm. They were doing everything they could to clear out all the debris, all the junk, and seemingly on the surface, they were making great progress. But what they found is that in leading up to the Olympics, athletes began to come down with these mysterious diseases, right? Um, just things like viruses and MRSA and other things like that that eat away your limbs. And they realized they had a deeper problem, right? That, that no matter how much cleanup they were doing outwardly, there was still these deep microscopic contaminants uh, debris and, and toxins that were part of the water that were still making people sick, even at the tiniest level. Now, I just think there, there's so many spiritual truths in there, right? In fact, I may use this illustration each and every Sunday for the rest of my ministry. You know, here it is. This is, this is the time of year where everybody's digging into their resolutions, right? And oftentimes we have spiritual resolutions. Even secular people can have spiritual resolutions. Maybe it's about getting right with God. Or I want to go to church this year. I want to do better. I want to get back on the straight and narrow. I want to be a better person or some form of that. Well, interestingly, I didn't know this either, but this past Friday, the second Friday in January, do you know what they call this? Quitter's Day. This is National Quitter's Day. That's where most of you are giving up your resolutions. Of course, I gave mine up long before that, all right? Now, why do we find it, or people, humanity, find it so hard to stick to things? You see, the reason spiritual resolutions often fail is that we forget that cleaning up our life is much more than just tidying things up on the outside. Rearranging the externals in our life. Spiritual defilement and uncleanliness, the scriptures tell us, run deep. And so something far more radical and supernatural is called for in our interior worlds in order for the outward to change. For the outward to change, there has to be a dramatic restructuring of the systems of our hearts. And this spiritual dynamic 
is what Jesus wants to teach us about this morning in Matthew. So we're going to be in Matthew 14, verse 34, and we're going to read through the first 20 verses of chapter 15. So if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gesenaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they may only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there is something wrong. We, we, we know in the depths of our souls that we don't do what we want to do. We do the things we don't want to do. Lord, we struggle. We, we suffer through. We fall down. We get back up. And we're just confessing that, that we don't have the solution to what ills us. We, we don't have the ability to fix our most fundamental problem. Only you do, Jesus. And so, Lord, show yourself fully, clearly this morning who you are in our need for you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. You'll recall that last week, or really in Matthew 14, the last couple of weeks, Jesus has just recreated two of the greatest miracles in all of the Old Testament. One was public for the people, one was private for 
the disciples. And the one for the people, of course, was the feeding of the 5,000, recreating that amazing miracle where the Israelites received manna in the wilderness for 40 years. And as you could expect, after doing such a miracle, the Gospel of John tells us they immediately tried to make Jesus king. And so it tells us that Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him in the boat. Remember, this is last week. They, he came walking across the water. But they, but they were moving from the crowd to a different part of the Sea of Galilee over to the north and the northwest. But as you can imagine, you could not contain a phenomenon like Jesus. Remember that back in Capernaum, the woman with the issue of bleeding, remember that? That she that she, all she did was touch the, the hem of the garment of Jesus and she was immediately healed. And word had gotten out on the street. Hey, you don't even, you just get close enough to Jesus just to touch him. And so throngs, it tells us here in 14, of people are coming to him. They are, they are, they're, they're seeking to touch the hem of, a, of his garment, and it tells us in 14, as many as touched were made well. Now, here's what's interesting. We know when Matthew wrote this, he did not put the, 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 um, the chapter and verse divisions. Those were added hundreds of years later for reference. And when we read the end of 14 into 15, you'll notice how stark the contrast is. How, how jarring the transition is from what is happening with Jesus and the people and then what's happening with the Pharisees, okay? Let, let, let's read that part again together as one story, which it is. It tells us, all who were sick implored him to touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus saying, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. I mean, do you see, do you see the contrast here? Jesus is a cause celebrity. People are thronging to him. They're touching him. They're being healed instantly. Jesus is actually making people's bodies whole. And here the disciples are worried that, um, I'm sorry, the Pharisees are worried that the disciples are not washing their hands before dinner. It sounds like an episode of Andy Griffith, doesn't it? <laughs> Opie needs to get in there and like scrub down with the soap. I mean, think about it this way. Let, let's say that someone you love, the person you love the most in this world, maybe or, or, or a group of people that you love the most, and one of them needs a heart transplant. And you know, that's a complex operation. It's, it seems a little commonplace to us today, but I mean, think about just the medical miracle that is, to take the heart out of someone else's body and put it in another person's body, and that person actually live. And imagine that your loved one is in surgery for hours and hours and hours, and finally the surgeon comes out, and says the operation was an absolute success. The heart is pumping, it's functioning, this, your, your loved one is made whole, and the whole while, somebody else in your family becomes fixated on a speck of blood that is on the scrub of the surgeon. 
How incongruous that would be. How absurd, how ridiculous, how out of balance. That is exactly what's happening here. Now, what is it that has gotten the Pharisees so worked up? Well, we're going to talk about that. But really, Jesus uses this to press into us the most important question really anyone could ever ask, and it's simply this. How is a person made clean before God? No more vital, eternally important question than that one. By the same token, what makes a person unclean before God? And that's where Jesus wants to take us. And we're going to talk about this text in sort of three sections, and here they are. Number one, we're going to first talk about tradition. Second, we'll look at defilement, which is kind of the heart of this text. And finally, the implications for the human heart. Now, let's talk about tradition first. Look back at the text in verses 1 and 2. As the Pharisees are approaching Jesus, it, it reminds me of what they would teach us in seminary when I was going through um, training and counseling. They were, we were taught about what is it that you say when someone comes in to counsel with you. These are the sorts of things they teach in graduate school, all right? And it usually would go something like this. You need to say, what, what brought you here today? Or, or how can I help you? And of course, the response, maybe it's something relational or marital or with parenting or an emotional struggle or what have you. Whatever the, the client would say, this was called the presenting issue. And here in verse 2, the presenting issue is the washing of hands. This is the thing that has brought the Pharisees 60 miles from Jerusalem. Remember, these weren't the local Pharisees, okay? who had gotten hammered by Jesus time and time again. This was the guys in the C-suite, right? These were the dudes in the high tower bound in Jerusalem who were coming forward to see what all this commotion was about because word had gotten on the street, right, that Jesus was breaking the laws of ritual cleansing. Now, we're joking about washing hands, but in actuality, it was a serious issue, right? Um, because the Old Testament actually does talk a lot about ritual cleansings, okay? And let me, let me um, quote here from one of the commentaries that helps explain the, the, the place that ritual cleansings played in the worship of the Lord by God's people. So I'm quoting now. The principle is that in order to participate in the life and worship of God's holy people, a person must avoid defilement, which might arise through eating or drinking unclean food, through unclean bodily conditions, especially those involving fluid discharges, or through contacts with unclean things or people. All right? So, so we know from Leviticus that touching a dead body or coming into contact with bodily fluids or or blood made one ritually defiled. And what that means is it's not that it sent someone to hell. And these were things, these were normal bodily functions. They weren't sinful in themselves. But God had set these things up as a sign, as a picture 
of the necessity of holiness, that, that God is holy, pure. There, he, he is full of unapproachable light. He is spotless. And all of these ritual cleansings were meant to remind the Israelites they were not holy and that God was holy and that in order to enter his holy presence, there had to be some sort of cleansing. Now, these cleansings, don't think about them as like saving someone. Again, they were signs. They were signs engaged in by faith that the people of Israel would say, I know I, that God is holy, I am unholy, and I need to be spiritually cleansed, right? So, and there were actually a lot of laws about hand washing. However, they, were, they, they applied primarily to the priest. It was the priest primarily who were to do all the ritual hand washing before they offered sacrifices, before they um, took the showbread. I mean, that would, be, that would be helpful, right? That the priests would wash their hands before taking the bread, right? After their hands were in the guts and stuff. You get the idea. So this was prescribed in the Old Testament. However, here's the key point. There was nothing, absolutely nothing in the Old Testament about the people of God as a general populace engaging in these kinds of ritual cleansings as it related to food. That belonged to the tradition of the elders. Look back here at verse 3. They mention this, or or verse 2. They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? What is the tradition of the elders? We understand there was the Old Testament. And in their zeal, the scribes and the Pharisees, to protect God's words, that's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to protect God's word and want people to obey it and call people to obey it. They began to enact other laws that you also had to obey to make sure that you didn't disobey the first law. Does that make sense? There were laws about laws. And then sometimes there were laws about laws about laws. And these became this very mumbled, just um, massive sort of confusion. And what ended up happening is that they end up making these extra biblical laws, mandates, as having equal authority as the Word of God itself. And disobeying one of the traditions of the elders, right, was paramount to disobeying the Word of God itself. And by the way, let me just say, that's how legalism always starts. So, so the Bible says lots about money. It gives lots of principles. It has things to say about this and that and borrower is slave to the lender and all these things. And, and so some people say, oh yeah, in, in order to protect the biblical ethic of generosity, we need to do finances this way. And if you don't do finances this way, you're not doing finances God's way, right? Or, you know, respect, submission, authority in the home is very important. And there seems to be an epidemic shortage of that. So in our quest to address rightly a biblical issue, we say, and in order to faithfully navigate this issue, you've got to parent your kids this way. Do you hear this? And so there's 
If you're a Christian, you'll, you'll do your finances like this, or you'll educate your kids like that, or you'll have this sort of posture to, to, to just fill in the blank, right? Clothes, dancing, alcohol, schooling, these go on and on and on, right? Well, this is exactly what's happened here in this text, that the oral teachings that had been laid down by the elders not only had an equal authority to the Word of God, in some cases they actually trumped the Word of God, and in order to be faithful and obedient to the tradition, you actually had to disobey the Word of God. And, and, and that's a serious pastoral issue, right? where all of us in our lives have to be wrestling constantly with this idea of what does God's word say versus what is tradition or what is the way we've always done things or maybe that something that was really good and helpful at this time is not so good and helpful at that time and let's discern the difference. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But Jesus actually gives us an example. Right? He, before he talks about defilement, okay, which is really their real concern, you're not washing your hands, you're ritually undefiled, before he addresses that, he wants to tackle the core issue here about how their tradition is trumping the Word of God. Now look back at verse 4. Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages. First, he says in verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he quotes Exodus 20, and then another verse, verse from Leviticus, honor your father and mother, don't revile your parents. Now, this was commonly understood in Israel with the people of God that this meant, this honoring of your parents meant, when necessary, caring for them in their old age. This meant helping them when, as they got older, remember there was no, no social safety net, nothing like that, um, th as they get older and they couldn't work, that it was their job, it was their obligation, their great responsibility, and their, their, their great privilege to help care for their parents financially, materially, in their older age. This is why every time we are together with our kids at dinner, we remind them of this, right? Okay. We, we, and you would not believe their responses to this, all right? It fosters great unity in the family, not, not, not at all. So, so this was crystal clear to everybody. Everybody knew this. However, with the Pharisees, there's always a however. However, there was an extra biblical teaching it was a teaching about a spiritual vow you could take, a vow called korban. Now here it's called offering to God. Mark calls it korban. It's, a, it's, a, it's an actual word, okay? It means to separate or set apart. And here's how it worked. Let's say that you were given a gift or you received an inheritance or your business just did exceedingly well. What you might decide to do, and this is a good thing, by the way, is say, you know what? I'm not going to spend all of this on myself. I'm going to set apart, set aside a portion of this to use in the work of the church or the kingdom. 
and Israelites would do that. They would say, okay, I have this much money, this much of it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pronounce a vow of Korban, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to give it to the treasury. I'm go- it's it's going to be an inheritance to the temple when I die. I'm, I'm, I'm setting it aside for, the, for, for God's use, okay? But as you can imagine, <laughs> this became a system open to abuse, right? And so let's say something happened that required a financial obligation on your part. So somebody was in need. There, 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 was, there, there was a project there in town that needed a, a generous benefactor. It became then very common for the Corban vow to be abused, and people just went around saying, Corban, right? Parents, try this with your kids. Mom and dad cannot, Corban, Corban, it set it hard for God, right? And this became so rampant and abusive, parents of children, elderly parents, were I mean, effectively eating Alpo, right, for dinner, instead of being cared for by their children, because their children had found a workaround of the law. They had pronounced Corban, and then they found a workaround to the workaround, and what oftentimes ended up happening is that they just kept that money for themselves anyway. They found another way around that. This extra-biblical tradition was allowed to trump the clear teaching of the Word of God. And so what does Jesus say to them? He says, you hypocrites. You are charging me with going against your traditions. Guilty. But I'm charging you with going against the Word of God. And this idea of making the word of God void, okay, look back at your text there, that literally means to divorce. It means to annul. It means to invalidate. It means to functionally separate your life from the teaching of the word of God. Because let me just pause here and say for a second, There is nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. In fact, you could say, in one sense, that the passing of the gospel to one generation to the next is a tradition. It's a mandated tradition, but it's a tradition. It's been passed down, right? Here's something one of my seminary profs said, and I think this this bears repeating. He said this. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Those things that have been passed down that have life, that are good, that have ongoing relevance uh, and growth and godliness to the present generation. Tradition is is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Those things that are done just simply because we've done them that way. Just simply because to do something different would make us uncomfortable. Because sometimes to be obedient to the clear commands of Scripture, parents, you're going to have to stick your fingers in your ears. Students, sometimes you're going to have to stick your fingers in your ears in order to be obedient, not to the traditions of men, as good as some of those are, 
instead to be obedient to the word. You know, there's a, there's a movement going around, right? It's been happening probably the last 20 years where a lot of older churches, established churches, boomer churches, mainline churches are, are dying. They're receding. And again, that's, that's what happens, right? Because Jesus says, I'll build my church, but he doesn't, doesn't promise to build every single church. And so, Four Oaks, take, don't take for granted what we have here. It is a gift. It is a, it is a blessing. It is a grace. But as some churches have dying, they've seen this as an opportunity. Because sometimes there are younger churches, church plants, who have a lot of people but no facilities. And some of these older churches don't have people, but they have resources. And you know something pretty cool happens when you bring those two together. And that's when churches get reawakened and renewed, new works are formed. But that always takes that older generation to go first and to say, I'm going to do some things outside my comfort zone for the sake of obeying a clear command of God to pass the gospel torch to the next generation. But let me tell you what is very sad. And this happens over and over and over again. There are some churches and leaderships that would rather die than change. I'm not listening to them. I'm not going to do things that way. We're we're just going to sort of hold on to our little nugget. We're going to bury it in the ground. And what oftentimes happening is they lose their church buildings because it goes into foreclosure or it goes back to the, a nameless denomination, or some other thing. Such opportunity squandered. Why? Because traditionalism. And so the people of God in every generation are called to say, where is it happening in my life? Where is it happening in your life? There has to be a constant process of coming back to the word over and over again and say, God, I know our family's done it this way. I know that this is kind of how I've structured my life. I know this is what we've been doing as a church, right? But, but how do I be obedient to the word of God right now? And that's the lesson we learn here from tradition. Now, as we go to the second point, Jesus, because he's kind of like a good teacher and stuff, he uses this opportunity to teach us something about the initial question and concern of the Pharisees, which had to do with spiritual defilement. Let's look at that next, okay? Look, look, look at verse 10. Here's what Jesus says. It says, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now, this is not just a word for 2,000 years ago. This is a word for today. Here's what Jesus says. Food does not make you spiritually unclean. Food does not defile you spiritually. Now, food can make you fat. Food can be abused. Food can be misproportioned. Not all foods are created equal in terms of being healthy. However, there is not an eating food God's way. Jesus is just simply laying out a principle to say, you can't be defiled religiously, spiritually, 
by what you eat. But what Jesus is saying, though, he's simply pointing out that while not, again, in, in this specific context, eating food is not what defiles you, he says, but rather what defiles you is not what goes into your mouth, okay, but what becomes out of your mouth. Now, now what is that? What is all that about, okay? So, I think it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Food does not defile you. What comes out of your mouth defiles you. And sometimes in Scripture, the mouth is used as a metaphor, as a symbol for the whole center of someone's heart and emotions or one's whole being or one's whole, one, one's whole body, right? And what he's saying is that sometimes, or not sometimes, what comes out of your mouth whether it's words, deeds, actions, are an indicator of what's really going on in your heart. So if I'm driving around with my Four Oaks magnetic thing on the back of the car, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in a prayerful state, and I'm just praying, and I pull into that gosh-forsaken carriage gate parking lot. Do you know what I'm saying, people? Let, let the hearer hear, okay? And people have lost their minds in that place. And if you don't know, just, I invite you. Go over to Trader Joe's today and just drive around a little bit. And I'm in a great place, and all of a sudden, out of my mouth comes, blah. And I'm like, what was that? And I hope that person doesn't see the decal on the back of my car. I'm just keeping it real, okay? I have to say, there's something going on deep in my heart here, right? This, this isn't about learning to communicate better. You know, couples say all the time, we don't communicate well. Bull, you communicate great. That's not the problem, okay? The problem is you might communicate too well. The problem is what's happening here. And, it, and is this not just what James says, James 3? But no human being, what, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a Fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You see, what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion and worldview in the, in the world is simply this. Every religion and worldview says, you know, there are a bunch of problems out there. And, and granted, there are a bunch of problems. Corruption, poverty, racism, violence, terrorism, abuse of power, income disparity. I mean, we, we, we could go on and on and on. There are a lot of problems out there. But human religion says, and as such, it's our job as humans to fix those, to, to serve our fellow man. And in doing so, not only do we feel better about ourselves, but we're pretty sure God's going to feel better about us as well. Because after all, we've played our part. Because you realize Christianity says the absolute opposite. For as many problems as there are out there, every problem out there 
is a result of a problem in here with the human heart. It's not that the world makes, first makes us corrupt, although it does, it, it does its part. We corrupt the world because we're already corrupt. We're born corrupt. And James chapter 4 should be a headliner verse over every, every counseling session, over every negotiating um, uh, opportunity between countries. It, it, should, it, should, it should be on our um, dashboard as we're driving around. James chapter 4, remember this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Pause. My family, my job, the boss, the, my friends, fill in the blank. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, James says, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What does that sound like? That sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? It's almost as if James was related to Jesus and like studied Jesus' teachings and wrote a letter about it or something. I, I don't know. But remember what hypocrisy is according to the Sermon on the Mount. This hypocrisy, let me say a couple things about hypocrisy because Jesus calls them hypocrites. Hypocrisy is, doesn't mean we don't sin. Hypocrisy is when we pretend we don't sin. You see, wholeness or flourishing or wholeheartedness comes when the inner matches the outer. And the reason the Pharisees are hypocrites in this story is that they were acting like they were concerned for the things of God when really they were just concerned for themselves. You see, God's people are always going to fail. God's people are always going to fall. It's only when God's people, you and I, deny that ignore that, rationalize that, explain that away, that hypocrisy begins to creep in. And this is such a serious thing, this teaching, this Jesus plus, this hypocrisy, this traditionalism, this adding to the word of God. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, he answered them, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. When Jesus says, let them alone, he is not saying, let the Pharisees be Pharisees. That, that's our cultural mantra, right? Let you be you. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, pay them no mind. Give them no platform. Give them no opportunity. Do not come under their sway. Do not give an inch. This is why Peter opposed, I'm sorry, Paul opposed Peter in Antioch to his face when Peter was trying to add to the clear teachings of the gospel that you had to, and guess what that controversy was about? Food. Let them alone. Now, if that's not where defilement comes from, and it comes rather from the heart, the most obvious question is this, Pastor Paul, then how does one become undefiled? Let me just say a couple of brief things under this last point about the heart. 
The answer in this text is implicit. If what, if, if we cannot fix our own hearts, which we can't, that's Jesus' whole point, then something outside of ourselves has to come in. There has, there has to be another way. Do-it-yourself, man-centered, traditionalism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that's not going to make your heart less defiled. You don't have that power. And what's, that's the implicit answer, but as we read through Matthew's gospel, what we're going to find out is that the answer becomes very explicit. Matthew 27, when we get there, says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was Jesus forsaken on the cross? Because he was defiled. Because he had taken on your defilement and mild defilement. He had taken on my sin and your sin. He became a curse for us. The way that we become undefiled is someone from the outside has to come and take our defilement on our behalf. And in taking our defilement upon himself, Jesus gave us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how a person becomes undefiled. Jesus lays his life down on the cross. Not in some generic, I'm just dying to show my love for my enemies and goodwill towards the world. But in this, he actually became the curse of God. The curse of God landed on him. Our defilement landed on him. The Father turned his back on him. And then his righteousness given to us. Being, maybe you feel undefiled, in the, maybe you feel very defiled in this season of your life. Maybe you feel very dirty and you have a, a, a wounded conscience. You have a burdened soul. And Jesus says, stop looking within. Look to me. Let's pray. As you are uh, bowing your heads, I ask you just to take a moment to silently prepare yourself to come to the table. And as you're doing that, I invite our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements. Just spend the next minute or so preparing your hearts for coming to the Lord's table.